Okay, we're going to Second Peter tonight. Second Peter. We spent a lot of time in First Peter here. Uh, years we spent in First Peter. Um, I love preaching or teaching from the books of Peter. They're they're some of my absolute favorite things, and I've spent an awful lot of time working on Peter stuff over the years. Um, got to write a book on Peter for my dissertation, and it's only 600 and some pages long. And uh, I really enjoy studying Peter. I think I could be a Peterologist if I wanted to be, if they had such things. Uh, but Peter not only is a, is a handful of books um, that he wrote, First and Second Peter, that I find so very practical, uh, but I also find them rather neglected. There, there's a... Um, a trend, I think I could say, in what I've seen in my fellow pastors and all that. We like to go to Ephesians, we like to go to Corinthians, we like to go to uh, Philippians and other books like that. And we spend so much time in there that it's almost like Peter gets neglected. You know those other books out there, Peter, First, Second Peter, First, Second, Third John. When's the last time we did a whole series on Third John? Never. I mean, that needs to be done. Um, the book of Jude, which we're going to do on Sunday mornings, too. Some of those books, they call them the general epistles. And they tend to just set them aside as if, well, we should be talking about Paul. We're dealing with the church. And, and yet, Peter was part of the church. <laughs> uh, matter of fact, Peter had wonderful things to say and, and sometimes some hard things to say. And yet, when you put yourself in his sandals and you read it from his, his experiences, too, you say, ooh, you know what? This man wrote from a heart that has been bruised an awful lot. And uh, he's learned much over the years. And so I appreciate that. And Second Peter especially is one that uh, tugs on me a great deal um, to share this with you. So we're going to spend time in Second Peter. Like I said this morning, it's part of our Jude study, actually. Uh, some people wonder when they get to chapter 2 and on, whether Jude borrowed from Peter or Peter borrowed from Jude. Because sometimes the terminology is almost identical and the illustrations are identical. And you say, huh, how did that happen? Uh, which one, and they always say it that way, which one borrowed from the other? And more times than not, they think that Peter borrowed from Jude. And I'm thinking, but Peter was there and Jude wasn't he wasn't a believer until after the resurrection of Christ but Peter was there and I tend to give Peter a little more attention on that side I think Jude it wasn't borrowing or stealing or plagiarizing it's just that Jude says boy he said it right I'm going to put it down and I think that's what we get but anyway I'm going to I'm going to work with first Peter 1 here while I'm working on Jude there in the mornings and then when we get to the end of Jude we're actually going to second chapter of second Peter in the mornings while we're still working on this into chapter 3 does that make sense it's going to be fun it's just going to be fun and I think when you weave them together like that you find something fascinating because there was a message that the Lord was getting out to the people in the 60s AD uh, Peter would have written this maybe about 64 65 it was just before his martyrdom and uh, the message that he had and the message that Jude had was that the warnings given earlier about future 
issues like false teachers in the church and such like that, they were warning that that's coming. That's coming. And Jude suddenly says, it's here. And they were in the middle of something that they they should have been prepared for. And it seems like the church was caught off guard because the church, in our understanding of Jude, got a little bit lax in the process. And they started to welcome in people who were false teachers. And they were fellowshipping with them. And that's a sad thing to do because once you open that door, they're in your pew. They're in your fellowship dinners. They're a part of your congregation. And that's that's where real trouble starts. And we're going to see that not only in Peter but in Jude, that that's what they were dealing with. The false teachers were in among them. When, when I was a, a new pastor in Birmingham, Alabama, um, hadn't been there at our church for many years. I, I honestly did not go into the ministry um, expecting to be in the ministry, if that makes sense. Uh, it just fell that way. No, it was the Lord. That, the Lord did that. Uh, but um, I was a um, morning children's church teacher for four incredibly bratty children. They belonged to the pastor and to the uh, youth pastor of the church, and they were a nightmare to work with. I, just on a side note, they were a nightmare. And I'm, I'm teaching these four every single Sunday morning and wondering why I'm here uh, working with them. And um, the pastor left, and so did his youth leader, and so did half the church with him. And there was this church that I was teaching, this children's church, and they said, you went to Bible college. Why don't you fill in? And uh, so I, I had no idea what I was doing. And I've told you this before, but they didn't know what I should do either. So it was a happy combination. We, we had no idea what to do. But I was, the Lord put me in a ministry, and suddenly I thought, wow, is this bigger than what I ever thought? I didn't know what pastoring was like, and that was enormously challenging uh, it took four years to figure out how to write a sermon. <laughs> it was tough, but it was tough on them more than anything. But uh, in the first year or two I was there, um, we had a man come into the church for a Sunday morning, and boy, was he sharp-looking. I mean, everything about him says college professor, top-notch, maybe even wealthy. The whole look about him was, you better stop and listen to what this guy has to say. He that had that look on his face and that way of carrying himself, and I remember him coming in the church and stopping, oh, about where Anthony is, or maybe a little closer in the uh, pew ratio, going toward the back there, and he sang the song so boldly and so strongly, and, and everyone stood there with their mouths wide open, like, oh, if only we could have him in our church, we want him in our church, and, and uh, so when the service was over, they all flocked over to him to get to know him and who are you and, you know, all those things. And then all I heard all week long was telephone calls. How would we get him in our church? We want him in our church. We need him in our church. Da, 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 da. They, they were so impressed with what they saw. And I said, well, I'll, I'll try to get to know him. Well, he called me. And he says, how about if we, we get together and have some lunch and talk? And I said, well, Okay. And so I went and I sat down with him to eat. 
And he started talking about the things of God and from the Bible, general things that I said, yeah, okay, I'm listening to him. And then he started to insert things that I'd never heard in my life. I think, what is that? I'm, I'm keeping a record in my head as he's talking about things. And I said, well, I've never heard that. I've never heard that. I've never heard that. As I'm thinking, I wasn't telling him that. But I was just listening to him, and he was bringing these things up. And something just told me this stuff is wrong. And if you want to find out what it is, you better look hard because it's probably a cult. And I said, hmm, that's in my head. And I think, I've got to figure this out. So we finished the dinner, and I went back to my office, and I pulled out my Walter Martin's Kingdom of the Cult book. And I said, I've got to find this. I just started page after page after page going through this book looking for what he had said. And I found it. I came across a group called Armstrongism, it's Armstrongism, uh, and I started looking at that, and it was the same words. It was the same everything. And I said, oh, this is creepy stuff. He was a teacher in that group, and he was going from church to church to find new pastors to convert them to Armstrongism. And so I studied it for a whole week. I mean, I studied it thoroughly because I knew we were going to meet again. And I, I read all the things and how do you answer it and all those kind of things. And, and I went back uh, to a dinner. I was expecting him. He came in, but another guy came with him who was his teacher. That was kind of scary. <laughs> they sat across the table from me, and they started in right away with the full dose. They were, he, they were there to convert me into their thinking. And uh, thank the Lord that he had prepared my heart for this. Because, I mean, I was shaking. I was shaking. I was scared stiff. But they were talking, and as they're talking, I'm just turning in my Bible to the next answer. And I'd say, but the, God says this. And then they'd move to the next topic. And I'd turn to my Bible and say, but God said this. And they kept going. After a while, they never opened their Bible. There was one sitting on the table, and the guy started thumping it with his finger, saying, it's in there, it's in there. But I kept countering it with what I actually read. And he was getting madder by the moment because he could not compete with God's word. And suddenly he jumps up, the big teacher, he jumps up and walks out. And the, the other man who was part of you know, coming to our church, he, he looked at me and went, Okay, and he got up and walked out. I never saw him again. And yet I nearly collapsed out of exhaustion after dealing with that. I was like, whoa, is that heavy stuff? But there was something that taught me early in ministry, the value of God's Word. Because there's a lot of junk out there, and it's hard to discern what is right, what is wrong. How do we know? How do, especially in a day like ours where technology seems to drive everything, and if it's on the web page, it must be true, right? There's, there's, that, there's a mentality that's going around that technology equals people who know something, and that's not true. Because a lot of people who don't know things are using technology, and that's an avenue that they're using. But here Peter is addressing a very big problem in a church, and they don't even know it. There are people in there among them, and Jude says it that way too. They're among you right now. They're eating with you. And you don't even know the danger you're in. 
Now, what does that all bring us to? What's our big theme for the month or the year? God is able, right? Look in Second Peter chapter two, verse nine. When we go through chapter two, I'll just give you a summary of what it says. Peter says there's false teachers out there, and they're dangerous. But you know what? This has happened before. And he talks about different things, different events in history that happened where angels sinned, uh, Noah's flood. He talks about Sodom and Gomorrah. He talks about Lot. He talks about problems of righteous men who are being tormented. He goes on and on with a list of all kinds of terrible events. And yet this is what he says in verse 9. The Lord knows how. I love that. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Think about that for a minute. Many times when you're in the middle of it and you say, oh, it's too big or it's too scary or I'm overwhelmed with this or that or we're caught off guard by this or that, this is a beautiful thing to come back to because more times than not, we don't know how. The Lord knows how. The Lord knows how to protect in the midst of some of the worst situations you've ever seen. Noah, (laughs) the Lord knows how. Lot, the Lord knows how. Were they in bad situations? Yes, the Lord knows how. I think that's a great compliment to what we're talking about in the morning. God is able. And when it comes to our protection in an ungodly world, guess what? The Lord knows how to keep you. Isn't that precious to hear? Peter learned that. And Peter writes about that in this book. I kind of use that as the centerpiece of the book. And that's what we're going to focus on predominantly. But this is what Peter did. Go all the way to chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. This is where we're going to camp tonight at first. We're going to move around in the book a little bit. But these verses are where Peter was leading to speak to us about, if there's nothing else we grasp from this book, let's take these two verses. You therefore, verse 17, Beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. Just like I presented to you, the false teachers are there. If we are not cap- care- careful, Peter says, if we are not guarding, and that is a command to keep doing that. If you are not guarding, you are susceptible to falling. What's he mean? Well, you can be carried away by the error of unprincipled men. When Paul spoke about that in Ephesians, That was because of immaturity. Remember? They weren't growing in Christ. The picture was, and if you don't, you're you're washed like a a child on the waves or in the wind. You're being pushed here and there to and fro. That's immaturity. And Paul emphasizes in Ephesians that we are to grow into the image of Christ. We are to, to become like him. And the stress is there because the only option we have is maturity in Christ or... This immaturity that gets you carried away. Can a believer be carried away by false teaching? 
Verse 17 just said so, right? Who's he talking to? Believers. He says, believers, beloved, listen. If you are not careful, if you're not guarding, you are susceptible. I'm translating it in a different way. You see that. To be carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your, watch the word, steadfastness. He didn't say fall from your salvation, did he? Steadfastness. That's where you're able to stand solidly on the truth and able to apply it to your life. Be able to walk in a world like this and know how to step correctly as a believer. If you're not mature in the faith, your step will not be accurate and your stand will not be firm. As a result of it, you can fall. We know the devastation of a fall, don't we? It can hurt you, especially as you get older. It can hurt you a lot to to fall. Here he says, that's the danger, beloved, you're in. That's the danger you're in if you don't keep your guard up. And the second thing that goes with that is right there in verse 18. He says, this is the contrast. Grow. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. That sounds something like, that last phrase, something like Jude would write. But notice, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want to set something before you, and it's real simple. There are two options here, and there's nothing in the middle. It's either fall or grow. Sometimes in our Christian life we think, well, I'm just going to ride it out here in the middle. But the commands are, guard so you don't fall and grow. He doesn't give us a third option. If we are not growing, guess what we're doing? We are creating the scenario to fall, aren't we? Okay, suddenly, we have the application right in front of us, and I didn't even get that far in the sermon, but there it is. We must grow. We must grow. There was a man by the name of Mr. Carney. He was uh, in that same church that I started in, in Birmingham, Alabama. He had uh, a bad case of Alzheimer's. Um, yet he was, he was kind of a gentleman. Um, yet his wife had a lot of issues with his Alzheimer's. One was that he couldn't remember that he was married. And she'd bring him to church. And he was, he was part of a if you want to say this, part of a pageant, all right? When the offering was taken, he, he had for years been the, the head usher for an offering. And they had this pageant of him coming down the aisle to get the plates and all this stuff. And he was so regal looking the way he did it and everything else. It was just so impressive. And even when his mind was really gone, he still remembered to do that. And so we'd watch it every single week. He'd come down with this, you know, regal-looking way to get the offering plates to, you know, have them take up the offering. And Mr. Carney turns to his wife just before it one day and said, you know that lady in the choir, I think I'm going to ask her out. You know what? She didn't have the pageantry that morning. She picked him up and took him home. And she says, I'm not going to leave him with this because he couldn't remember that was his wife sitting beside him. 
And we, we kind of chuckled at that. But to her, it was like, how embarrassing this all is. And it was tough. And so she kept him at home, which was hard still because he wanted out of the house. And he never slept at night. Can you imagine that scenario? That was really heavy weighing on her, too. So I would go over there often. So I could sit with him so she could go and get some rest or go to the store or something. And I'd go over there and I'd sit with Mr. Carney. And Mr. Carney would always walk to the doorpost of the front of the house and he'd measure himself on the doorpost. He says, yep, knew it. I'm a little taller today than I was yesterday. He was growing an inch every single day according to his measurement. And I thought, what an interesting perspective. He'd look out the window and say, you see how tall those trees are? They're not, they're not as tall. Yesterday they were taller. I mean, and he's always doing this stuff, and you're like, his perspective was a little off to see things changing that drastically all the time. And I think of Mr. Carney every time I hear the word grow, because that's all he ever talked about was, it's, I've grown taller. The trees are taller. This is taller. That is taller. And everything like that. And I said, well, if somebody not in their right mind is thinking about growing all the time, wouldn't it be good if we as believers thought about growing all the time? That's verse 18. And I'm going to show you what verse 18 is all about as we go through here. Because it is a call for us to grow. And there's a reason for it. As Peter will set up for us here in this book, in chapter number 2, there's false teachers out there. What is our defense? Knowing the Lord. And then he goes into chapter 3, and he talks about end times, future events. And these are not the pretty ones. He talks about mockers. He talks about uh, the world being destroyed and all these other things. He talks pretty heavy about the future events that are coming. And guess what the answer to that is? For the believer, grow. Grow in your knowledge of the Lord. Because if you do, you're not going to read chapter 3 and become afraid. Because it's not about you. You see, there's knowledge in this. Things that we need to know. So he's, he's got his theme in front of us. Grow because false teachers are there, because future events are coming on there. But grow is his repeated concept all the way through the book. Chapter, chapter 1. Go back there for a minute with me. Verse number 2. Watch how often that concept of, of something growing is in here. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. What's be multiplied imply? It grows, right? Look at uh, verse number 5. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, Knowledge, in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, in your perseverance, godliness, in your godliness, brotherly kindness, in your brotherly kindness, love. That whole concept is based on the word supply. What does supply imply? Adding to, adding to, adding to. Something is growing. You want a lot of supply. Obviously, in this list, you want that, don't you? All these things need to grow. Look at verse number 8 while we're there. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, what does that imply? Growth. 
they render you neither useless nor unfruitful watch in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, something needs to grow, and it's related to our understanding of Christ. Verse number 10. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you, for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. That's based on knowledge of him, growth in him. What does it mean to say more? There's the idea of growth again, right? Add to it. Add to it. Add to it. What do you have? Oh, I'm diligent. Okay, do it more. His emphasis is all the way through there. Be more diligent. Be more diligent. Be more diligent. Now, in the middle of this, from chapter 1 to chapter 3, he sets examples of how, he examples of why, examples of what to avoid, judgments, false teachers, wicked people, future judgments. He sets all that up in the middle chapters, and then he gets to chapter 3, verse 14. And suddenly he turns back to his congregation that he's writing to, and he says, Therefore, beloved, now he left them to give all the illustrations. And now he's back to them again. Since you look for these things, be diligent to be found in him in peace, spotless and blameless. And so he goes into his application here, and by the time he's done, he's to verse 18. Grow. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's an urgency to the letter. There's an urgency. There's a necessity to the letter as he's writing these things. If we don't do these, do you know what? We become complacent. We become lax. We become at ease. And that's not safe for us. Not in a world like ours. Not in a world like his. We can't go that way. We are reminded over and over and over again to grow. This is what John Calvin said. I thought, I've got several quotes here and I think they were fun. John Calvin writes, he urges us to advance. Because the only way of persevering is continually to go forward and not to stop and sit down in the middle of the journey. Well, that's kind of fun. I like this one from Richard DeHaan. He used to write a lot in the Daily Breads. Over the years, he did. And, and this, was, this was good, but this is convicting. I'm sorry, but it is. One of life's greatest tragedies is a Christian who, in the middle and elder years, is less loving, less kind, less generous, less faithful, less gentle, less self-controlled than he was right after his salvation. In direct contrast, one of the most beautiful things in the world is a believer who steadfastly, though perhaps not spectacularly, grows in Christian virtue and knowledge year after year. It's convicting on one side, isn't it? Because this time now we look at ourselves and say, am I growing? Measure yourself on the doorpost. Where are you this year compared to last year? Have you grown in your knowledge of Christ? Have you grown in these things that Peter is telling us to do? Let's look at who he is and why he could say this. You know Peter. You've read a lot about Peter. You've seen Peter's stories all the way through the the Gospels. Um, If this was written somewhere around 66, maybe 65, we, we don't know the exact dates. 
That means Peter has been a believer since about the year 33, maybe, maybe 32, somewhere around the, the ministry of Christ and the resurrection. We can put it down there for sure since the church began at Pentecost. We know that. So mark Peter as maybe 34 years into his Christian life. Should he be more mature than he was when it first started? You would think so. 34 years is a lot of time to mature in your faith. And we expect that. He also had that many years of ministry, too. He was serving the Lord. He's not speaking to you in this book as a novice. 34 years of ministry, 34 years of I'm estimating, but 34 years of Christian life. And what do we know about this man? We read earlier in the Gospels, he was impulsive. He was arrogant. He stuck his foot in his mouth a lot. He denied the Lord. He was even arrogant about that at some times. He was presumptuous. He was timid. He was cowardly at times. Sometimes he was self-sacrificing, and then he was self-seeking. I mean, in the next verse. This man is such a, a contradiction of thoughts all the way through. He's got spiritual insight, and then he says the dumbest things. And you say, what is this guy all about? He, he's, like, he's like that fish on the dock, right? You pull it out, you set it down, and it's flopping all over. There's Peter for you. And Peter will say that. He says, you know, that's where I was. That's who I was. I gave the greatest confession of Christ ever, and I denied him to the fullest extent. You read about Peter in, in his ease. Remember when he was told to stay up and he went to pr- sleep instead of prayer? Peter would warn you, if you were reading this book, he says, don't fall asleep now, guys. Don't fall asleep right now. Don't become complacent. Don't set down your guard because there's danger out there. And Peter had enough time to look it up and to see it and to know it, to learn what he has learned over all these years. He is a man who can speak to these things. He's not the only man. If we wanted somebody else in Scripture who can do such a thing, we could pull out a man like King David. What do we know about this man? King David? Well, if anybody was um, divinely chosen... (laughs) David was, for his task. He was a courageous man. He was a champion. He was a soldier. He was a poet. We have everything about David in black and white, and yet we also have that chapter, don't we? That chapter with Bathsheba. And where was David when that happened? He was at ease. He let down his guard. And we know there's a lot of problems that came from that. A lot of problems that came from that. But what was particularly interesting to me was one comment David made. I want to show it to you. It's in 2 Samuel 15. 2 Samuel chapter 15. Verse number, oh, i got to help Anthony out here, 24. He's back to his pad, so i got to help him. Okay, what happened? David had sinned greatly, we know that. His family life was falling apart all around him. There's all kinds of trouble in his kingdom. This is the time when Absalom, 
threatened the throne, David had to leave. Remember, he, he was departing out of Jerusalem to save his life. And he's going down the road with uh, his, his best men that would support him. They're walking there together. David is lamenting the whole way. We remember the story, I think. But as he's going, he turns around, and who's following him but Zadok? Who's Zadok? He's the priest. And what's, the, what's he thinking? He, he says, well, if David's leaving, then the ark needs to go too. I think that's kind of interesting that they think that way. It's like, David, he's our spiritual leader. We've got to have David. We've got to have the ark. We can't leave the ark here for these people. So the priest and the Levites pick it up and they start walking behind him. And I think, wow, what an interesting picture this was. If ever somebody like David needed a boost to his ego, that would have been a good one. I mean, here's the whole religious thing that Israel's all about, the Ark of the Covenant. And they're carrying it behind him as he's going for his life outside of the city. He's like, wow, that's pretty good support, David. But look at what David says. He sees that going on behind him. And the king says to him in verse 25, the king says to Zadok, Return the ark of God to the city. If I, there's an if, it's okay here. If I find favor in the sight of the Lord, then he will bring me back again and show me both it and his habitation. But if he should say thus, I have no delight in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me as seems good to him. Think about what he just said. He just suddenly realized everything happening to him was because he sinned against his Lord and lost favor. And he says, if he wants to restore me to his favor, I would love that. But that ark isn't going to do it. Take it back. I will come back if the Lord lets me to that ark. He says, but if the Lord chooses not to. Usually we don't go down that road, do we? <laughs> we, we prefer the optimism. But what if the Lord says, no, I'm not going to return my favor upon you? What then? David says, well, here I am. Lord, do with me whatever you want. Did David grow through this terrible situation? He created it, but did he grow? He came to a place where he was willing to sit at the feet of the Lord, to let the Lord do whatever he wanted to King David. Cause him to prosper, cause him to fail. Wow. There was a, there was a um, missionary years, years, years later, many years before us too, and he spoke to this extent. Robert Murray McCheney, and this was his words, and I'll tell you a story in a second. I find that I am never so successful as when I could lie at the Christ's feet, willing to be used or not, as seemeth good in his sight. Robert Murray McCheney was Scottish, I believe. He wanted desperately to be a uh, gospel carrier to the Jews. His heart was for the Jewish people, and he wanted desperately to go and minister to them. And he thought that the best place to go was around the territory of Jerusalem where he'd find some Jews and he could talk to them about the Lord. He wanted that desperately. But the Lord instead gave him a disease, one that rendered him 
incapable of even doing ministry as far as preaching or teaching or such like that. And he, every time he had his heart just pounding to go, his health wouldn't let him. And he wrote his memoirs out. He died at a very early age, 29, I believe it was. But he wrote out in a book his memoirs, and this is one of the phrases that was in his journal. And I find it so interesting to read because you know his heart's desire, as you would know David's heart's desire, Peter's heart's desire, and yet because of man's well weakness, whether it's sin or whether it's health or whether it's, I, I don't have the wisdom, I don't know what to do, all this stuff. When it comes down to all that, what's the only option? He says, I've never felt more successful. That's what really stuns me in the phrase. I've never felt more successful than when I can lie at Christ's feet, willing to be used or not, as seemeth good in his sight. Sometimes we think what Peter is talking about is how to be useful. Because it does say that, by the way, when you're reading First Peter chapter number 1, and you're reading in verse number 8, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful. And we sometimes stop there and say, isn't that the goal? The reality is no. Useful, unfruitful. Use, what's the word here? Neither useless nor unfruitful in what? Ministry? No. Knowledge of the Lord. You see where the picture is taking us right there with those words. So often we think that it's the Lord's impressed by our actions. You know, let's just make it look like we're doing everything. And then here's him. And he says, no, just know me. Know me. Grow in me. And that will render you neither useless nor unfruitful. You see, we aim at the wrong things too often. We aim at the usefulness. We aim at the, the fruitfulness. When he says, no, aim at me first. And I'm the one who makes you useful. And I'm the one who makes you fruitful. Remember the vine story of John 15? How much can the vine do apart from Christ? Nothing. Nothing. If we're aiming for the fruit and we skip the Savior, we've got a problem. This is what he, he's calling them to do. He says, knowledge is great. We, we have to have knowledge. We have to have knowledge of the Lord. But here's the reality. This doesn't come by accident. Growth does not come by accident. That's why it's a command in First Peter or Second Peter 3.18. Growing is a present tense command. It means keep on. Put it, if you will, put it right into your words. Keep on growing. Keep on growing. Keep on growing. It's a never-ending process for us down here. Keep growing. We must keep on growing. Albert Barnes said, No one becomes eminently pious any more than one becomes eminently learned or eminently rich who does not intend to. <laughs> Too often, if we're not aiming for something, what do we hit? Nothing. Nothing. Grow, Peter says. Keep on growing constantly. Keep on growing. Keep on growing. 
Keep on growing. Now I'm going to add another element to this word because if you looked it up in your Greek concordance, which is a great idea, you would find it's a word that means keep on causing to grow. And I thought, ooh, what an interesting idea that is. What does that suggest to you? The cause to grow. Yeah. I mean, how many of you can just look out in, in your garden this spring and just wait for it to hop up? Like, oh, there it comes. What must you do? There's work out there, isn't there? Somebody's got to go and take the weeds out. Somebody's got to loosen the soil. Somebody has to cut the rows. Somebody has to plant the seeds. Somebody has to bury those seeds. Somebody has to water those seeds. Somebody has to leave it alone then. Don't dig them back up and see if they're growing. You've got work to do in the process because you're setting it up for growth. And you say, okay, Pastor, what, what, what do you mean by here? How do we grow as believers in the knowledge of the Lord? Study. I see the word being said to me back there. Study what? This book. Does it take effort to get the time to read this book? Yes. What's the easier thing to do? Nothing. You're right. But it, we have to set it up, don't we? We have. He gave us everything we need. We could say he gave us the soil. He gave us the water. He gave us the seed. He caused us the growth. All that things. But guess what? We have to appropriate what he's given to us. We've got to read the word. Because that's the only avenue he's given to us to know of Jesus Christ and his grace. This is where we learn it. And if we're not investing in this, the danger is we will fall to unprincipled men and fall from our steadfastness. Is that serious? Very serious. Because we haven't learned his word. And if we don't learn his word, we can never learn of him. I, I give you a push here at the beginning of a new year. Some of you say, oh, I always do this resolution thing. Right? I'm going to read through the Bible this year. I'm going to make it all the way through. And, and yet Leviticus gets tough. Numbers, that first half of numbers. You say, oh. And then if you make it through those two, you're, you're cruising for a little while with Joshua and Judges, and you're saying, great stories, I love these stories, I love these stories, Job. Uh, it's challenging. Book of Psalms is a mile long. Then you cut Proverbs, and you say, oh, that's interesting, I could do that. Then Ecclesiastes comes. You say, oh. And then you get past Ecclesiastes, and guess what you run into right away? Isaiah and Jeremiah, and by the time you're done with Ezekiel, your head is spinning from all this stuff, and you say, this is tough. And then you hit minor prophets you've never heard of in your life. That's challenging. I admit it. It's challenging. Anybody who sets the, the goal in their life to read through the Bible in a year, that's not an easy task, but it's a rewarding task. It's a valuable test because it's doing more than one thing. It's Yes, it's teaching you about what God's Word says, and you need that. But it's also 
setting in your life and in your heart and in your mind God's Word. You could, you could set up a pattern, whatever you want. You don't have to read through the whole thing. Pick one book and read it every single month. You ever tried that? Just pick one. Some people do Proverbs because it's 31 verses or chapters, and they could do one chapter a day. Of course, you hit February, and then you've got to read several chapters to fit it all in. But some people set different kinds of goals. One year I, I decided I was going to read all the way through it, and I read all the way through it, and then I went back and just read the New Testament a second time because I had spare time in the year. I knew a man who read it through every month. I'm talking about God's whole word. Of course, he was retired, and he had a lot of time on his hand. But we had a chart on the wall. We had one of our church, you know, beginning of the year things. I said, everyone, we want to read through the Bible together. We've got to encourage everybody. So I set this chart on the wall, and they put their names down there, and they were to check off the books as they got through it. And I said, maybe that could encourage somebody or greatly discourage them if they're way behind. But either way, this guy checked the whole book off the first month. I mean, all the way through. And we're all looking at that saying, what? We thought it was a mistake. The next month, he checked off the whole thing again. It's like, wow, really? And he told me he did. And I enjoyed talking to him. This man was a talking Bible encyclopedia. Why? He saturated himself with God's Word. How else are you going to grow in the knowledge of Him? That's what we're called to do. That's what he's saying. Grow, grow, grow. Cause it to grow. And that means you've got to water that thing. You've got to invest in that thing. You've got to make room for that to happen. You've got to set it before you as something that important. You have to grow. And you grow in his grace. You grow in his knowledge. That's, well, one guy said it was big enough to allow growth through your whole life. Grace is big enough to study your whole life, isn't it? Jesus Christ, is that a topic big enough for you to grow in? How likely are you to outgrow your knowledge of Christ? It's like little kids in big clothes. Oh, you're growing to it. How many times have we said that? You're growing to it. You know, we're given grace that's far too big for us. Did Peter know how big grace was? Oh, yes, he did. Why does he keep talking about it? He saw what the Lord had done with him, and he was a man who appreciated grace. He appreciated knowledge of Christ. That's what his his goal was, to know him better. And that's what he appeals to all the way through this letter. I'm just giving you the reason why we should study it. it, is what I'm doing with you here tonight, because if we don't grow, we are in danger of falling. That's what it sets up for us. J. Vernon McGee in his little commentary uh, said, he didn't say who the author was of this, but it was kind of cute. We mutter and sputter. We fume and we spurt. We mumble and grumble. Our feelings get hurt. We can't understand things. Our vision grows dim when all that we need is a moment with him. How simple that sounds. How simple that sounds. But the reality is we do not drift accidentally into the knowledge of Christ. But we can drift in the other direction very quickly, can't we? I just set this before you here tonight with what we wanted to start with. 
and the reason why we need to study this book. Because when it comes all the way down to it, the very last phrase of verse 18 is what we should be aiming for. Think of it. To him be the glory. When you do what he calls you to do, when you grow in your knowledge of him, guess what your goal becomes? He gets the glory. He gets the glory. He gets the glory. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. In other words, as students of Jesus Christ, we will never graduate till we get to be with him. You're in the eternal studies program. All right? Grow in your knowledge of Christ. That's Peter's call. So we're going to do that starting next week. But I would give you a heads up. Read through first or Second Peter this week. Three chapters. Can you do that? Just sit down and read through it. It won't take you long, but read through it. Because next week we're going to start in chapter 1 and start dissecting it and working through it. But keeping that theme all the way in our mind. Grow, grow, grow in our knowledge of Christ. Let's see where we are next year at this time. I'm excited about that. Heavenly Father, your word is wonderful, and it gives us much to do. May we not be neglectful. May we not be careless with this precious gift. May we not be at ease when we should be guarded. May we not be resting when we should be growing. There's so much that we're called to do in just a simple word we saw here tonight. So much we're called to do because the topic is unlimited when we talk about your grace and our Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ. May we become students of him and desire it more and more and more. Lord, you build within us a love for Christ. And that's because we spend time with him. And I pray that for each one in this room and those who might listen to this on the website later this week, that you might strike in our hearts a desire, a desire to saturate ourselves as much as we can with your word, to dig in it deeper and deeper and deeper, to know our Savior more and more and more. Lord, may that be something we set in our heart tonight to do, to cause the growth to happen by giving ourselves to it. Help us, we pray, for this is not something that our human nature wants to do. This is something that the Spirit works in us to do. So help us, we ask you. Give us the drive. Give us the desire. Give us that that, uh, unquenchable thirst for knowing Christ more. And I pray, Lord, that you will use this in our lives this week, especially in Jesus' name. Amen.